Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 111. Let's talk iPhone 10. Hi, I'm Neil. In a way, this feels like a special edition episode. Today is the iPhone 10 launch. So there's a very good likelihood that some of you may be listening to this episode on your new iPhone 10. In addition, long lines outside Apple stores, they're back. It's been a while since we've seen long lines. I actually think Apple probably missed seeing them as well. Of course, we can't really look at lines to determine demand, or either supply, but they usually do give Apple pretty good press coverage. So maybe going forward, Apple will bring back the lines for some of the major releases. And I think that's a good way of actually kicking off this discussion. The long lines are there for a reason. iPhone 10 is a very big deal for Apple. This isn't just any iPhone update. And that's the thing. Every year when Apple announces a new iPhone, you usually hear the company say, well, this is our biggest update yet, or this is the best iPhone since iPhone. And what ends up happening is those phrases, those slogans, they start to get a little bit watered down. Here we have iPhone 10, and a lot of people are saying the same thing. This is the biggest update yet. This is the best iPhone Apple's ever sold. This is the biggest change that we've seen for iPhone. The difference is this time around, all of those slogans, they're actually true. In today's episode, we're going to go over my initial impressions of iPhone X. I've been using the device now for five days, and there is plenty to talk about, but I think this is one of those episodes where keeping the discussion somewhat narrow actually has value. And so we're going to focus specifically on some of the marquee features and technology found in iPhone X and what it means for Apple going forward. We're also going to talk about Apple's different strategy this time around when it came to handing out review units. There's quite a debate out there as to what may be going on there. But in the beginning, I don't actually think we should focus on iPhone X. I think we should focus on the overall iPhone business. Because that's going to be the best way to find the motivation behind iPhone 10. Why is Apple launching this device in 2017? There are a number of ways of looking at the iPhone business. We can look at it with a financial eye. And so focus on revenue, gross profit, unit sales, margin. We can make estimates regarding how much cash is generated from the iPhone business. We can look at the iPhone business in terms of how many people it's bringing in into the Apple ecosystem. Or of course, we can focus on technology. We could see how the iPhone business has changed from year to year, depending on certain product marketing or certain features that Apple has included in these devices. But I think regardless of which way we look at the iPhone business, we probably would come to the same conclusion. After 10 years, the iPhone business is displaying signs of maturity. The significant sales growth era, that's over. It's in the rearview mirror. The upgrade cycle, it's getting longer. People are holding on to their iPhones for a longer time. It's harder to get people to upgrade. The way we look at new features and new technology, it's not the same thing as it was in the beginning, back in 2008, 2009. And so Apple was faced with a choice. Do you stick with the familiar? 
Do you milk the iPhone business for all it's worth? Try to wring as much profit out of the iPhone as you can. Or do you take what we're familiar with and throw it out the window? Pave a new iPhone journey for the next 10 years. Essentially, do you add a little bit of chaos to the mix? I think Apple picked that second option. And I think iPhone 10 is the byproduct of Apple's decision. There is no question that iPhone 10 is an inflection point for the iPhone business. This isn't about iPhone sales growth. It's not that the iPhone 10 is going to kick off this new era of renewed growth. I just don't see that. Instead, there's something much more important tied with iPhone 10. The iPhone user experience is now on a different trajectory. In some ways, you can argue that the iPhone 10, it places iPhone firmly in the direction of the original vision Johnny Ive and Apple's industrial designers had. We could go back to the mid-2000s when iPhone was still just an R&D project. Look at iPhone 10. I think that's what Apple really wanted to achieve. iPhone 10 is all about having the iPhone hardware melt away. You're then left with just using and interacting with software. That is why the iPhone 10 is such a big deal. Now, when you first use iPhone 10, and again, I think some of you are probably in this situation right now, you're going to notice that this isn't just any iPhone update. Historically, when you look at how Apple approaches new iPhones, they strive to have two or three marquee features. And the reason for that is you can, well, build a marketing campaign around it. So you need something substantial enough. Sometimes we're looking at hardware, maybe larger screens, fingerprint readers. Other times it may be a combination of hardware and software. So a great example would be portrait mode in the dual camera system found in iPhone Plus. We can look at case colors. A lot of people make fun of Apple for doing this, but new case colors are a really great way, and they're a reliable way, of enticing some iPhone users to upgrade. Over at AboveAvalon.com, I listed some of the more noteworthy updates to iPhone over the years. So you can look at, say, the iPhone 5. We had a 4-inch screen. iPhone 5S, that would be Touch ID. iPhone 6 or 6 Plus. Of course, those were the larger screens, 4.7 inches, 5.5 inches. I think the 7 Plus, I think that dual camera system in the 7 Plus, that was a really great feature. And then you have the iPhone 8, 8 Plus. A lot of people kind of look at those new phones, kind of struggle trying to find what, what exactly is the new feature. I would actually say gold. The gold case finish is a feature, but we have then the glass back, wireless charging. The thing is, when you look at all of those features or new technologies, no one feature jumps out at me as single-handedly changing the way we use iPhone. Instead, each one of these features plays a supporting role in a much bigger production. I look at, say, the iPhone 8 Plus. I've been using that for a couple of weeks. 
and yeah, maybe in the first 10 or 15 minutes, there's a couple of things that are new that are interesting, like the new camera, you're playing around with that. But after that initial period, well, it feels like an iPhone. Now, of course, I don't want to go back and use my older iPhone. <laughs> and I think most people would agree. It is rather amazing when you start using a new iPhone, you quickly forget about the old one and you would never want to use that. But the point is the iPhone experience was more of a continuation. Apple's broader goal of each new iPhone was to improve the iPhone experience ever so slightly each year. So I think some years, Apple saw more success in that than other years. But with iPhone X, it's just different. There are two design changes that really stand out. You have the removal of the front-facing home button, and then you have Face ID replacing Touch ID. Both of those changes, they mount to nothing short of a new iPhone experience. I was thinking to myself, what is the best way of describing the feeling of using an iPhone X? What I came up with is that it's the closest thing to using an iPhone from an alternative universe. You get this feeling of almost freshness, of some type of reinvigorating feeling. I look at it as it, it, it feels like the home button was holding the iPhone experience back. It's like the home button was a barrier to interact with the software. So iPhone 10, it removes that barrier and, and you really feel something different versus all these other iPhones. Back in September at Steve Jobs Theater, I was able to spend a few minutes with iPhone 10. The exhibit space was very crowded and very packed, and I wasn't able to use Face ID, but I was at least able to play around with the device, especially the user interface. And one question I had from September was if there really would be a learning curve to iPhone 10. Would it take a while to get used to it, to figure out how to use it? And really, much to my surprise, there isn't a learning curve. Sure, it may take a few minutes to get used to it, especially trying to use Face ID. But I never really found myself pressing the bottom of the screen as if there was a dedicated home button there. The remarkable thing is when you consider how ingrained the home button has been in our life, for me to just move on after a few minutes, I think it says something about the intuitive user interface found with iPhone X. This raises a rather straightforward question. Why did Apple remove the iPhone home button in the first place? The home button wasn't just a way to unlock our iPhone the dozens of times throughout the day. Instead, the home button represented familiarity. It represented safety. If we ever ran into trouble on our iPhone, well, the home button would bring us back to the home screen. It provided a sense of comfort in a way. Why would Apple risk all of that in removing the home button from iPhone? I think it's all about coming up with a different way to interact with technology. By removing the extra front-facing bezel from the left and right of the home button, well, the only thing remaining now is you in the screen. And that's why when you hear people talking about iPhone 10 or seeing it for the first time, they say that the screen almost looks like it's Photoshopped onto the device. 
be pretty hard to do that if you still sort of had a little bit of space at the bottom to put a dedicated home button. Just wouldn't work. Now, a byproduct of removing that home button was that Apple was able to fit more screen in the same iPhone form factor. The iPhone X does have a little bit less screen real estate versus iPhone Plus. And in my usage, at least in the first couple of days, you do notice it. I had been a long-term iPhone Plus user. I really liked the additional screen real estate found with iPhone Plus. I didn't have an issue fitting in a pocket, in a backpack. It's a little bit of a jarring experience when you go from iPhone Plus to iPhone X, especially if you use an app that's not optimized for iPhone X. It kind of feels like you're almost using a 4.7-inch screen again. Going forward, I think it is inevitable that Apple will launch new iPhones that share the same design language as iPhone X, but come in a much larger size. So you're looking at, say, take an iPhone Plus and add the iPhone X design language to that. And I think that model would be incredibly intriguing for me because, again, I really do like the additional screen real estate. As for why Apple went with a 5.8-inch screen out of the gate as the first iPhone X, they felt it was the most comfortable in hand. Now, we heard something similar in the past in the iPhone business when screens were much smaller, and Apple said, well, this is really great for one-handed use, and we see what happened. Eventually, things evolved, the market moved, and people wanted larger screens. I think that same trend is probably going to go on with iPhone X. It's going to expand. I'm not as sure about a smaller version of an iPhone X. I don't know exactly how appealing that would be. Because again, the iPhone X, it, it is very manageable. For, from, for someone who's been using an iPhone Plus for years, it is interesting how I can do a lot more just with one hand, although I can't get that thumb up to the upper left or right corner. So that's something to consider. But again, if I had to choose, I probably would want a little bit more additional screen real estate. This brings us to Face ID, which I think has been the most talked about iPhone X topic this week. So if you're Apple and you want to remove the front-facing home button, there's a question. What do you do with Touch ID? This was a technology that you had placed a very big bet on. And from all indication, it was going really well. You're still bringing this to other products in your line. But without a place to put a fingerprint reader on the front of the screen, what do you do? Do you research how to try to put it under the screen? Do you go and follow others and put it on the back of the device? What about the power button? The Apple rumored cottage industry had a very wild 2017 when it came to Touch ID and this new OLED iPhone. Many people... Apple rumor finders, rumor, I don't know what you call them, spreaders. They were extremely confident that Apple wanted to put Touch ID under the screen. But due to certain technology roadblocks, they couldn't do it, and they had to settle for Face ID. 
Others called Face ID or facial recognition as a type of stopgap until Apple can figure out putting a fingerprint reader under the screen. I'm not sure where they got those reports. I'm not sure who the sourcing for those rumors are. But I think a lot of people got this one wrong. The idea of Apple investigating a way to put fingerprint recognition under the screen, that's not that outlandish. I think it would be weirder if Apple didn't kick the tires for that idea. But to claim that Face ID is in any way a, either a compromise, a stopgap, or Apple settling, I think that is just fundamentally wrong. Instead, Face ID represents Apple's next reiteration of their quest to push biometric authentication forward. I do find it interesting how Apple has been extremely vocal in pushing back against this narrative that Face ID was really just meant as a stopgap. The company, in, in a rare moment, the company disclosed that a lot of this iPhone X was pretty much determined last November. No rumor was indicating that. All of these rumors over the span of the past few months, they were talking about, well, Apple is scrambling to try to figure out how to do this. I think those rumors are wrong. Now, I don't know where people are getting this information. I don't know if it's a supplier, if it's a component supplier or a competitor of Apple who is upset with Face ID and they're feeding wrong information. I'm not sure. It is just very weird how so many people kind of grabbed onto this and ran with it. In reality, you can just look at Face ID. Does that really look like a technology that Apple just finished two or three months ago? No. Even when you look at these rumors about iPhone X supply, I think they're just so off the mark. You have some analysts going around saying, Apple can't make enough of these. It's going to be so awful. You look around, I'm seeing more evidence than ever before that supply is a lot better than people were thinking. Yes, there are still supply constraints, but this dire situation of you can't get your hands in an iPhone X, I just don't see that. So something weird happened with this iPhone X in terms of the rumor cycle. We'll see if this continues with future products going forward, but it did jump out at me. In terms of Face ID, if I had to come up with a slogan to best describe this technology, it probably would be very impressive, but not perfect. There are a number of drawbacks that I'm finding for Face ID. The first item is that you need to look directly at the True Depth camera system for Face ID to work. Most of the time, that's not going to be an issue. But for those times where you may be used to having an iPhone on a desk or a table and you would just sort of reach over, press the home button and, and, and get into your iPhone, that won't work anymore. So you're going to have to hold up your iPhone pretty much in front of your face for Face ID to be able to capture your eyes, nose, and mouth. I also found that to be a little bit difficult in the morning. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But when I get up, I have either one eye that's still closed, both eyes are still closed, and Face ID won't work. I'm, I am having trouble in the morning, and I'm required to type in the passcode each morning, 
which again, isn't pleasant. Now, the thing is, are these deal breakers? Of course not. There are drawbacks of Touch ID as well. But I think it would be a little bit misleading to say that Face ID is perfect because I don't quite find that. Another drawback that I've been experiencing has to do with mannerisms. And that is sometimes I may be sitting in front of a desk. I have my hand to my head, maybe in a thinking pose. I have a finger covering my mouth. Face ID is not going to work in that situation. So I try getting into my iPhone 10 and that lock symbol at the top of the screen never goes to unlock. And then I realize, oh wait, I got to move my finger. Again, minor inconveniences found with Face ID. And then in terms of speed between Face ID and Touch ID, it seems like the answer you get depends on who you're asking. I did find that Touch ID was quicker if you're just trying to get to the home screen. So you pick up an iPhone, you want to get to the home screen, Touch ID is quicker. But there are other circumstances where Face ID comes out really well versus Touch ID, and I would say even faster. And that may be where you may need authentication. And what Face ID actually does is it removes an entire step or a layer to that authentication process. And that results in a very quick process. For the average person, you're probably not going to really tell the difference between Touch ID and Face ID in terms of speed. And that is pretty remarkable when you consider how far Touch ID had come in just a few years. Go back to that first year, that first iPhone that had Touch ID. Wow, was it slow. And then you have now the iPhone 8 Plus with Touch ID, which is, seems like multiple times quicker. The next item has to do with the screen and the infamous notch or the true depth camera system and how the iPhone X screen wraps around the camera system. I don't think you have to spend too much time with this device before it becomes clear why Apple chose to remove as much of that front-facing bezel as possible. When you look at that notch, some people, especially leading up to the iPhone X launch this week, some people said it was bad design. A lot of that was based on renderings. They saw how this thing was used horizontally in certain apps, and it, I guess people just didn't like how it looked, and they said that's bad design. I disagree with that line of thinking, and all of the alternatives that had been put forth by this camp, I just don't think they're better. I think they're worse. You have either some who, who say they should follow Samsung and Google and kind of keep a a thin layer of bezel at the top. I, I don't see how that's better. You have some who say, well, they should just kind of not have any content up there, just kind of have it black. And again, I don't see how that's better than what it is now. Instead, the more I use this device, the more confident I am that Apple designers and engineers, they made the right decision. In a way, they're being honest about the form factor. They're being honest about that design constraint. In a perfect world, the notch isn't there. In a perfect world, you'll have an edge-to-edge -edge display, no notch. But that's not possible. To have Face ID, to have all of those sensors and cameras, they have to be at the top. And instead of moving away from the edge-to-edge -edge display, you're basically allowing those upper left and right corners to kind of pull you in in a way. In usage, you don't notice it. I've said that from the start, 
everyone I've talked to who's been using iPhone 10 says the same thing. It's not an issue of, yeah, I want to ignore it. I'm trying to ignore it. I'm not paying attention to it. You just don't notice it's there after a while. The interesting thing about the notch is that I think there's a very high likelihood that other smartphone manufacturers are going to embrace certain elements found with the notch. This idea of, well, don't just have this extra bezel just to kind of make it look like a straight line. Because honestly, these smartphones with extra bezel, Samsung, Google, they look dated. And I just don't think they're going to be able to run with the same design next year. They're going to need to have some changes. The final point about the notch is that Apple is fully embracing it. The notch replaces the home button as a defining characteristic of iPhone. It's a way for iPhone to stand out from its competitors. So in a way, the notch ends up being iPhone 10 branding. I can just see some Apple competitors being absolutely livid about this whole topic. They were thinking that Apple was making a mistake with this. Apple wouldn't be able to kind of push it as branding. They would get pushback from people. And it just doesn't look like that is happening. When it comes to how the iPhone 10 sits within the entire iPhone line, starting today, Apple is selling three new iPhones simultaneously for the first time. You have iPhone 10, iPhone 8, and iPhone 8 Plus. So I've been using an iPhone 8 Plus and an iPhone 10. I don't think it's completely right to say that Apple now has three flagship iPhones or even two flagship iPhones. Instead, iPhone 10 is Apple's flagship iPhone. As for who iPhone 10 is targeting. In the beginning, I thought it was for people who wanted the latest and greatest technology. Meanwhile, everyone else, they will buy iPhone 6S, iPhone 7, iPhone 8. However, after using iPhone 10 for a few days, and when you consider how people actually buy iPhones, I'm not sure that's actually correct. Instead, I think the decision between an iPhone 10 and an existing iPhone with a home button is going to come down to one's comfort level with change, one's desire for familiarity. For some people, iPhone 10 is just going to be too much change at this point. They're going to be comfortable with a home button. And I think the iPhone 8, 8 Plus, those are going to be decent options for them. Then you're going to have some people who, you know, they're okay with some change. They don't mind kind of going through a little bit of an awkward phase with Face ID. Those people are going to sort of lean towards iPhone 10. At this point, I'm very confident that iPhone 10 is going to sell really well, especially in markets that have established premium segments of the smartphone market. So US, China, Japan, I think a lot of people are going to want iPhone 10. They're going to be okay with the change. They're going to be okay with casting the home button off, or at least leaving it to say the iPad line for now. But I think when you look at emerging markets for Apple, iPhone 10 probably isn't going to sell as well. Instead, you're looking at iPhone SE, iPhone 6, 6S. I think a decent case can be made that iPhone 8 and 8 Plus, they'll sell just fine next to iPhone 10. We have Apple announcing yesterday that the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus had been the two top-selling iPhones 
from the end of September up to now. There were rumors that that wasn't the case, that the iPhone 7 was actually outselling the iPhone 8, 8 Plus last month, which the rumor didn't sound right to begin with, but Apple kind of put an end to that. When it comes to combining all of these pieces and taking a look at overall iPhone sales, I still think it's a little bit early to run with assumptions that the upgrade cycle is going to accelerate. I don't see that. Instead, I think Apple continues to be in a good position in terms of having a very large iPhone user base, a very good percentage of which are new users that just joined, say, in 2016, 2017. These people are going to be in a position for an iPhone upgrade in the coming probably year or two. And so I think you may just have a situation where even though the upgrade rate is slowing, people are holding on to their iPhones for more, there's just simply more people. There's more iPhone users out there. And so you could have this sort of organic iPhone unit sales growth due to upgrading, due to existing users buying new iPhones. It's going to be interesting to see if the iPhone 10 can help Apple in terms of switchers, bringing Android users into the iOS fold. It is certainly possible because you have such a different design that could be tempting to maybe longtime Samsung users who maybe were kind of getting that itch of leaving the platform. The same thing applies for some of these other brands in China, where maybe you do have people who kind of do aspire to buy a new iPhone. The existing iPhones really weren't doing it for them, but maybe the iPhone 10, it's so different. It throws away so much of what we're used to with iPhone. Maybe that's the appealing characteristic. Before we get to the final topic for today, I wanted to briefly talk about Apple's strategy behind these iPhone 10 reviews, because there's some changes this time around. And it's been a very hot topic this week. A lot of people are talking about it, and I think some people are really off the mark here. If you go back to the original iPhone in 2007, you had four people review the product. Think of them as columnists. In 2007, the world was very different when it came to tech reviews. People turned to reviews to figure out if something was worth buying. Accordingly, these columnists had a lot of power, a lot of influence. It would not be a stretch to say that they could make or break a product based on what they had to say in their column. However, over the years, things began to change. Apple started to hand out more review units to different publications, different individuals. And you saw that number continue to increase. I think for the iPhone 8, 8 Plus, at least in the US, probably had more than two dozen firms. And then you have additional firms in China and other countries. But for now, I'm just really referring to the US. However, Apple still stuck to the same framework of giving review units maybe a week or two in advance so people can do comprehensive reviews. This time around with iPhone 10, things were different. And people got less than 24 hours with the device. Above Avalon, myself, is included in that group. This is the first time that I got a review unit. And a lot of people are upset about that especially people who, who like doing comprehensive tech reviews, they didn't like only getting 24 hours. And then they looked at how Apple gave some YouTubers access to iPhone 10, and they allowed them to publish a video a day earlier 
And they sort of said, what's going on here? Why are they sort of getting priority versus us? And also you had a couple of tech sites. They got it a week ahead of time. So there's a lot of confusion. I think some people are wanting to know what is going on here. And I saw some people, they were, they were running with really weird theories. And I think they were wrong theories. Some people were saying that Apple's hiding something. Other people said that Apple really isn't that excited about iPhone X, so they don't want reviews. They're afraid of tech reviews. I saw other people say that Apple has an issue with iPhone ownership among teens and millennials. So they're trying different ways of increasing market share, which is nonsense, by the way. <laughs> iPhone has 80% market share among teens, among U.S. teens. Uh, th that's not the issue. That's not what Apple's doing here. What Apple's doing is they are letting their review strategy evolve with the times. It's evolving with the changing marketplace, with the changing media landscape. People don't turn to reviews to find out if something's worth buying or not. They turn to reviews because they want to see what their favorite personalities, what certain people have to say about a device. So what Apple did this time around is they said, well, let's skip the reviews and let's skip some of the nitty gritty that is often found in reviews. That's another way of saying some of this crazy criticism that reviewers focus on. And let's try something different. Let's try to go for some buzz. That's Apple's ultimate goal in all of this, of course. And let's focus on initial impressions. Apple was well aware that if you have 24 hours of a product, you can't do a comprehensive review. How are you going to do a battery test in less than 24 hours? But the great thing about initial impressions, they're initial impressions. You don't need three days to reach initial impressions. From my perspective, I didn't mind this at all, and I actually thought it worked really well. I published a post over at AboveAvalon.com on Tuesday. It went over my initial impressions. I was very clear, this is not a comprehensive review. I then recorded a video, my first genuine video. It was largely based on the article in which I went over a couple features. I used some props to show Face ID. And then in the subsequent days, when I got new impressions, well, I put those in my daily emails to Above Avalon members. So it worked out for me really well. But for some people, it didn't work out. For tech sites who like those comprehensive reviews, they couldn't do it in a day, and they really didn't know what to do. So they said either, well, I guess we'll do initial impressions, but we still need to do a review. Some people went with sort of a first draft. I don't think their readers liked it. They put those publications in a very tough spot. You had some people who didn't even put reviews out. They just figured, I'm not trying this. I'm not going to play Apple's game. Just give me a week, and I'll publish it next week. So each one of us sort of has a different strategy. But the thing that I think stuck out the most, and the thing that I think people are so often marked when they make this argument, is to get upset that YouTubers got hands on time and got to publish a day earlier. I saw some people really insult these YouTubers, kind of calling them nobodies and uh, critiquing their style. And I think it's, it was so off the mark, and it was insulting. These weren't just some nobodies on YouTube. You take a closer look at this list, and these content creators have hundreds of thousands of subscribers. They have loyal groups of viewers and fans. They have very large collections of video. So Apple knew exactly what kind of video they would get in terms of style, in terms of language, in terms of how they approach products, how they approach new ideas. From Apple's perspective, 
they want to reach different people. They want to reach different markets. They want to build buzz. And I think they were able to achieve that this week. Yeah, it made some people uncomfortable. But I think going forward, those people are going to have to learn. And they're going to have to adapt. You know, some people say, well, I'm missing something here. There's value in a tech review. Because what reviews should do is judge company accuracy. So if someone's making a claim about a product, we need to judge if that's true before someone buys it. I disagree. I don't think that's what a review should be for. I don't think that's a review's purpose. If anything, the way Apple did this iPhone X review, it makes it easier to find issues with the product because a lot more people had access to it before the product went on sale. Look at Samsung. Their facial recognition issues were found very quickly. You don't need reviews for that. People don't want to be told if a product is worth buying. And so they're just interested in their favorite online personalities talking about and using the product. That's it. If you look at many of these YouTubers, they did an unboxing video, a first impressions video, face ID video, waiting in line video. This isn't meant to say that there's not going to be a place for tech reviews going forward. Instead, I think those are going to be niche. A handful of sites will do really well with that. But for everyone else, I think the momentum is found with initial impressions, fun videos, fun posts, fun podcasts about using products. Focus on what you think of them. The final topic for today is Apple's goal with iPhone 10. In many ways, iPhone 10 is the kind of product you would expect from Apple. Instead of the company just settling with the existing iPhone paradigm, watching iPhone sales and profit gradually decline over time, Apple is determined to move on to the next thing. When you look at iPhone 10, that's what I see. That iPhone 10 is the next thing. Apple is laying the foundation for a new user interface paradigm. We're going to rely less on multi-touch to control our iPhones. Instead, we're going to rely on glances and looks. With Face ID, we can probably think of it as Face ID 1.0. And as each year passes, Face ID is going to improve. Face ID is going through a learning curve. It learns our faces as time goes on. Every time Face ID doesn't capture my face and I have to type in that passcode, it's learning a little bit more about my face. Apple has 800 million iPhone users right now. That number is going to go to a billion. We're going to get to the point where Apple has a billion users using facial recognition. Just think of the implications that has in terms of health, in terms of the medical field. And then, of course, we have wearables. Wearables are increasingly positioned as Apple's top product priority. Where does the iPhone fit within that vision, within that product line? I think the iPhone is the augmented reality navigator controlled by glances and looks. And then that technology, I think it's going to start to serve as the foundation for other wearables. Wearables that are controlled by glances and looks. Wearables like Apple glasses. That's going to do it for today's episode. This was a very busy week for Apple. In addition to iPhone 10, Apple reported earnings. And so I sent out earlier today my review of Apple's fourth quarter earnings. Those went out to above Avalon members. So if you're a member, look for that in your inbox. 
If you're not a member and would like to access my earnings review, all you have to do is become a member. Go to aboveavalon.com, go to the membership page, and then sign up. It's very easy. It's simple. It's $10 per month or $100 per year. The cornerstone of Above Avalon membership is access to my exclusive daily email all about Apple. Each email is about 2,000 words. That's about two to three stories a day. And we focus on everything that matters in the world of Apple. We even talk about some competitors that I think have implications on Apple. My goal with each email is to get a better understanding of how Apple views the world. As an Above Avalon member, you also have access to the member archive. So you can go back and read previous daily emails. And there is a Slack channel so you can talk with other Above Avalon members. If you enjoy the type of Apple analysis found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I think you would like becoming a member and getting access to my daily email. Above Avalon is 100% supported by its members. So if you are a member, thank you for your support. And if you are thinking of becoming a member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. We will talk to each other later.